Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today, it's our honor to have as our guest Patrick Kelly, a member, a lawyer representative member of the Judicial Council of California. Pat is a past president of the State Bar of California, past president of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. He was, for decades, a senior managing lawyer and partner at the Wilson Elser Law Firm. He is now a mediator with ADR Services. He has received every honor that the California and Los Angeles legal systems can provide. Today, though, we are here to talk with him specifically about the Judicial Council, his service on Judicial Council, and the extraordinary times he has lived through with the Judicial Council. Pat is now in his second three-year term as a lawyer representative on the Judicial Council. There are four lawyer representatives, but Pat, an extraordinary, I think the first one, was reappointed to a second three-year term, and he is now in his second year of that term. Pat, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Howard. Before I get started, I want to make a preliminary note. I think that oftentimes you uh, talk about the bios of the speakers, but I want to share something with your audience about you. Uh, You and I have not only been friends for a long time, but you were the president of the state bar when I first went on to what was then called the Board of Governors of the state bar. And I learned so many wonderful things from you. You were such a tremendous president that I used many of the same techniques when I became president three years later. So I've, I've wanted a long time to say thank you for that, Howard. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Pat. And one of the great pleasures of having watch those who've succeeded me, especially you, is that those who came after me have done the job so much better uh, and have led under very, very difficult circumstances through structural changes in the state bar. And of course, that set a background for the kind of challenges that you faced and the Judicial Council have faced in the last, in the last year. Uh, I wanna ask you about the Judicial Council, but I, I wanna make clear People talk about Judicial Council sometimes in hushed tones. It's established right in the Constitution. Article 6, Section 6 of the California Constitution establishes the Judicial Council, and in Section 6D very clearly states that its mission is to improve the administration of justice. So while the judicial article, which is Article 6 of the Constitution, establishes the entire judicial system, within that article, the Supreme Court and other courts are established to rule on cases, but it's Judicial Council that is given this mandate to improve the administration of justice. So tell us about the council, Pat. How is, how is it organized? Who is on it? How does it function? I'll address that in a couple of parts. First, I'd like to tell you generally about the council, uh, why it exists, what it does, uh, but I would also like to give a little history that helps put it into a perspective. Let's start with the council itself. As it exists today, the council, as Howard mentioned, is created by a constitutional amendment in 1926. Uh, that amendment basically was looking for an organization to bring together all the diverse court systems in the 58 counties. As Howard mentioned, the courts were originally formed in the California Constitution way back in the 1840s. But the reality was that by 1926, they had become disjointed. The state had grown dramatically, and uh, they all had inconsistent local rules that guided the way they operated. So the legislature, by constitutional amendment, 
enacted the Judicial Council. And I think it's worthwhile to read quickly what the ballot argument in favor of that proposition stated then, because it will give you an insight to what the council has to do today. One of the troubles with our court system is that the work of the various courts is not correlated, and nobody is responsible for seeing that the machinery of the courts is working smoothly. When it is discovered that some rule procedure is not working well, it is nobody's business to see that the evil is corrected. But with the judicial counsel, whenever anything goes wrong, any judge or lawyer or litigant or other citizen will know to whom to make the complaint, and it will be the duty of the counsel to propose a remedy. So clearly, the legislature, the the uh, constitutional amendment, attended that there would be a, a body that would oversee the court system. But there were a number of things that happened after that that are worth mentioning that lead us to why the judicial council has the power that it has today. All right, the judicial council sets all the policy and allocates the funds for the court system in California. If you were to analogize the court system of California to a corporation, the Judicial Council would be its board of directors and the chairperson of that board would be the chief justice. The uh, Judicial Council also appoints an administrative director who oversees the staff and the staff implements and supports the policies. Judges in California are required by a ballot proposition that was approved in 1998 to report to the council as the chief justice directs concerning the condition of judicial business in their courts, they shall cooperate with the council and hold court as assigned. So as of that time, the judicial council was the rulemaking body and in effect the supervisor of the entire court system in California and disposing of the roughly $4 billion annual budget of that court system. However, there was one other wrinkle. Up until the late 90s, there was a, a independent funding system whereby each county funded their individual court system. And in fact, even the salaries of the, of the judges. Uh, you'll recall then there was the Orange County bankruptcy. As part of the Orange County bankruptcy, the trustee approached the state of California and said, hey, it says in the Constitution that you're supposed to fund and provide the court system, uh, where's our money? Well, uh, a gentleman named Joe Dunn, who later became the executive director of the state bar, was at that time the chair of the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. And uh, Mr. Dunn put forward uh, legislation that converted the system of court funding so that the courts would be funded individually, uh, but through the uh, Judicial Council. That then was elaborated on in 2012 after we had had the 2008 horrible stock market crash and the court had had roughly 25% of its funding removed by the legislature as they were trying to make ends meet for state, uh, state government. What happened then is that the Chief Justice, Tani Cantil Sakayui, who remains the Chief Justice today, and in my mind, uh, it's hard to imagine a more effective, forward-thinking, and devoted Chief Justice for our court. She uh, put a group together to formulate a system for funding that would be a workload analysis. So the goal was for the same uh, level of justice to be handed out in Placer County as in Los Angeles County. 
which is the largest of all the counties in terms of the courts. And so that group brought together a workload management project that to this day controls how uh, money is distributed as a budgetary matter through the Judicial Council, which is one of its principal functions. The council itself operates through various committees. It has 21 voting members. I'm one of those. 14 are judicial officers appointed by the chief justice. There is the chief justice. There are four attorney members appointed by the state bar board of trustees and one member from each house of the legislature. Council members do not represent any particular constituency, but are supposed to act for the benefit of the court system overall and the public. Council also has approximately 10 advisory members who sit and participate in the debate. Those include court executives or administrators, judges, and the chair of the trial courts, judges, advisory committee, and the president of the California Judges Association. The the group has staggered terms where roughly a third of the group rotates out every year. The council is also supported by roughly 20 advisory committees that do the workup with regard to each measure that's being presented to the council for consideration. And those include things like the Civil and Small Claims Committee, the Jury Instructions Committees for Civil and Criminal, and so on. Uh, One of the goals of each of these committees and positions is to uh, uh, make sure there is a balanced diversity within the organization. So great attention is made to making sure everyone has a voice through their representative. Now, the principal functions of the Judicial Council include court funding, as I just mentioned, and distributing the roughly $4 billion in funds that are provided through the legislature each year. But it also is responsible for uh, enacting and revising all the court rules, all of the court forms, uh, legislation that affects the judiciary, and other matters relating to access to justice, fairness, and diversity in the court system that includes such things as language access, a grant of attorney assistant through the Shriver Act, dependency attorneys to help people in the dependency court, education, self-help, and measures such as the cash bail measure. So in in brief sum, the Judicial Council is responsible for virtually uh, everything that goes on within the court system. Now, there's another aspect of this I should mention. I mentioned the Chief Justice earlier, who has done a miraculous job of uh, keeping her hand in each of these matters and leading the court during what has perhaps been the court's most difficult time as to COVID-19. But to demonstrate her leadership role to the court, one of her early initiatives back in 2013 was to form the Commission on the Future of the California Courts that had over 40 commissioners that included judges and attorneys. I was one of those commissioners who looked at the California court system and tried to come up with uh, resolutions that may help the court system move into the 21st century in a more effective way. That group, after two years of study and many hearings and many public hearings, came forward with a 300-page report that contained 16 recommendations. And four of those were assigned a priority by the Chief Justice for uh, action as soon as possible by the Judicial Council, 
things such removing minor traffic uh, claims out of criminal and moving them into a different arena, which has taken place. Uh, streamlining the civil action system, dealing with self-represented litigants in a more effective way, providing tools for them, and emphasizing the use of technology. The use of technology has obviously taken on an absolutely new meaning with regard to what's happened as a result of the COVID-19 issues. So, Howard, that's basically a rundown on the Judicial Council as it exists today. That is just a great summary and explanation for what the council does. And I think I I do want to mention, because it's so important, since sometimes lawyers speak of the Judicial Council in hushed tones, this is not a secret society. Everything the Judicial Council does in enacting its provisions and what it does is done in public. The meetings are public. The agendas are posted. uh, The website for the Judicial Council, just go to any website search engine and type in Judicial Council of California. You'll get all the information on the history and current agenda and actions of the council. So the council is transparent. Everything that you've talked about that it does is transparent to the legal community, transparent to the legislature, uh, and, and to the judicial system. And that's a very important part of this for, some, for, an, for an organization, for a governmental organization that has so much authority and in such an important area to be as transparent as the council is in terms of what it does is an enormously important feature of, of what it accomplishes uh, in, in, uh, in the state of California. So this year, you've gone over the history and we know what its powers and there was a kind of rehearsal for all this back in 2008, 9, 10 when the economy collapsed and especially the pressures then on court budgets with which the council and all local courts had to deal with. But now we come to 2020 and I think it's fair to say in 2020, you as a member of the council and the council as a whole just faces this this extraordinary and extraordinary, you search for words as an understatement, uh, when it becomes clear what the impact of of, of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic will be. So take us back to February and March, Pat, and tell us about what happened in the Judicial Council in terms of responding to and using its authority to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. Well, I think that uh, you've identified the correct area to start looking at in that regard, Howard. I would simply say that from a council perspective and from a court perspective, what has happened with COVID-19, I'm going to use again the word that's often used with respect to it, is completely unprecedented. Uh, The council itself and the court system has gone through many crises, such as the funding crisis that started in 2008 that I mentioned earlier. However, nothing even approaches the severity of the COVID-19 crisis in terms of its disruption of the court system and consequently the, the disruption of all the goals that the Judicial Council tries to bring into play, such as access. Uh, but let me give you a brief history of what happened there and what has happened uh, since then. I do want to say, Pat, pardon me, but as you go into this, I want to I want to say something about people's reaction, because, you know, so much that's occurred has been the subject of so much discussion. 
it this was a as you mentioned whether we call it a black swan an unprecedented event the council and its members you and the other members of the council and the staff and the chief justice you all found yourself in this situation having to react to a crisis with no precedent uh, and under great pressure and with the highest stakes involving the administration of justice. And you can't emphasize that enough as people comment. And there are some criticisms, but I think it's important on the whole, the way the council responded to this crisis and how it dealt with these issues and what has happened in, though it's six months after all, is a relatively short period of six months, is really extraordinary. And I think it's important that as you talk through the choices the council made, that people keep in their minds the nature of the crisis under which these decisions were made uh, by those who, to use a military analogy, were in the foxholes and who those outside and observing have to respect the kind of pressure that was present to make these decisions. I just wanted to say that because I think it's important to understand the context in which these extraordinary decisions were made. So let's go back then to that period and talk about what happened. All right. In order to to do that, I'd like to mention just a couple of things quickly. First, what the the council did and to the extent that it's made what I think are very positive steps with regard to dealing with the uh, coronavirus, the chief justice has truly shown extraordinary leadership in that and has set the agenda to be forward-looking and to try and do the very best the council can do with regard to the access, uh, fairness, and diversity goals of the council itself. And uh, I must say, I am very proud to have served as a part of the council during that, but also proud to have uh, served under a chief justice who has been so forward-looking. And by the way, pardon me again for saying, but I just want to say, because we'll talk later about it, but one of the measures of the effectiveness of what was done is that so many of the emergency orders that we'll talk about, dealing with the administration of justice, uh, dealing with helping civil cases to go forward, dealing with cash bail, dealing with other things, so much of that has now been enacted, critical elements have been enacted by the legislature and made permanent as part of law. And so the actions of the chief justice and the council done under emergency simply permitted those to happen in a timely way. They've now been validated in most cases, been validated extensively by legislative enactment. Uh, I thank you for mentioning that, Howard, and that's absolutely correct. But getting directly into those issues as we address them, on May, uh, March 27, 2020, I think is the correct date, the governor issued an executive order giving the Judicial Council and the Chief Justice authority to take necessary action to respond to the emergency created by COVID-19. The Chief Justice acted immediately, and the following day, on March 28th, the Judicial Council met to go forward with uh, a series of initiatives intended to maintain the status quo while the legislature was in a position where it was unable to act. These were what have been no, come to be known as the temporary emergency rules. Before we talk about those, I just again want to say, when you say the legislature un, unable to act, it's important to realize that the legislature was unable to act in large part because of the restrictions placed on its ability to meet 
because of the coronavirus. So essentially, the council had to fill in an authority that was not acting because of the because of the coronavirus itself. That sets the stage, I think, for a discussion of what the council did. And before we hear specifically about what the council did, I do want to mention that if you're listening to this, you may obtain MCLA credit as a result of listening to this podcast. And we'll now take a brief break to hear about that MCLE credit may be obtained in your going forward. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. So we are now back talking about specifically what the council did. So, Pat, let's follow on. Having set the stage, uh, move forward in terms of the council's actions. Where I was, was mentioning that the governor on March 27th issued that uh, enabling executive order. But the executive order did not cover everything because the Chief Justice has to operate, or the commission, has, uh, council has to operate through the local courts, 58 local courts. And at that time, the way that the Chief Justice could, or the council could give an order that would affect those courts, would be at the emergency request of a particular presiding judge, such as uh, Judge Brazil in Los Angeles. And then the chief could, could act. One of the legislative enactments that has taken place just recently is, uh, I believe it's uh, SB 338, uh, I'm sorry, AB 3366, which uh, now allows the Chief Justice to directly address all of the presiding judges in all of the 58 counties without having to be asked permission, in effect, to do certain things and to help them out. That's a, a, a wonderful step forward, but no such rule existed at the time all of this started in March of this year. So therefore, the Chief Justice had to issue multiple orders, always in response to request of local presiding judges in the 58 counties. In any event, the temporary re- emergency rules on March 28th uh, really extended the time periods for hearings and trials and encouraged the use of technology in judicial proceedings. Uh, a more significant ruling came out or, or order came out on April 6th, and I've forgotten whether it was the 28th or 6th, but the Chief Justice called a special session on a Saturday for the council to meet to do its business and getting these emergency orders out that were made necessary by the fact that the legislature couldn't convene. So we did 11 temporary emergency rules 
including the uh, adoption of the COVID bail schedule, staying eviction and foreclosure proceedings, extending statutes of limitations and civil actions, and extending timeframes for restraining orders. We also added two additional rules that dealt with allowing electronic service and requests to modify spousal, partner, or family support. All of these to provide temporary relief while the legislature couldn't act in areas where the legislature ultimately would have to act. And it was the enabling order by the, uh, by the governor himself that basically invited the council to do that. On June 10th, the council, now that the legislature could meet, the council voted remotely to repeal the emergency rule relating to the COVID bail schedule and returning authority to the county to set bail schedules. And then after that, uh, the uh, uh, council acted to withdraw emergency rules one and two, which dealt with unlawful detainer actions and provisioning the issuance of summons and entering defaults in actions under certain rulings, uh, such as a trial being set. And the reason, and judicial foreclosure action, that emergency rule was withdrawn as well. And the reason was that the legislature could now act. And that made clear that the council was acting in the absence of the legislature's ability to act, and now was in a position where it could hand back to the legislature dealing with these issues, which in fact, the legislature did and enacted a number of different measures, which you referred to earlier, Howard, which were really carrying on, carrying forward with the types of policies that the council had put emergency orders in for. But the legislature could then act and more appropriately, it initiated its own measures. So that's basically the history of that. And the, uh, I could say again that all of this occurred because of the inability of the legislature to effectively act. But thankfully, the ability of the Judicial Council under the leadership of uh, Chief Justice Tane Cantil Sakaui to step forward and provide remedies for uh, uh, or relief to maintain the status quo while the legislature uh, was held out of session. So that, uh, that's the basic action, and I'm proud of that. By the way, the final date in this uh, saga is July 24th, where during our regular meeting, uh, the council voted to uh, amend those emergency rules with regard to unlawful detainer and judicial foreclosure, and in effect, pull back on the emergency resolutions that had been previously passed going back to April and March. Yeah. And that, of course, has been followed by legislation adopted as emergent as urgency legislation already signed by the governor uh, dealing with uh, unlawful detainer and judicial foreclosures. What I'd like to do is because so much of this, you know, so much of this has had not just an impact during the emergency, but will have an impact permanently going forward in the administration of justice given the actions of the legislature of following the model actions of the Judicial Council. I'd like, in terms of civil litigation, for example, Pat, to talk about one of the emergency orders right at the beginning uh, dealt with in March and April, uh, the issue of remote depositions and electronic service. Uh, here we were in COVID, people weren't getting together, 
And t- tell us about those, because those have also been made permanent by the legislature in terms of what was done and its impact on law practice with regard to deposition practice and electronic service. Absolutely, Howard. As you correctly point out, uh, the governor has just signed legislation that puts many of those steps into, uh, into effect through that legislation. But basically, the problem was that you recall the social distancing requirements we had. And you recall the uh, requirement of wearing masks that is debated and in, in and the requirements of quarantine that happened during much of that period. And in attempting to balance that, uh, attorneys and the courts throughout the state looked for ways that they could step forward and continue to have some business continue to operate within the court system in a meaningful way. One of the barriers to that was requiring that a court reporter be in the same room as a a witness when a deposition is being taken, or the requirement that counsel would not allow a deposition to be taken of a witness unless they could be in the same room. The Judicial Council and then the legislature looked at that, counseled carefully with plaintiff and defense attorneys throughout the state, and concluded the best way to deal with that was to Uh, put in the temporary orders with regard to uh, uh, allowing depositions to go forward. And and in fact, that worked really fairly successfully. But it's, I'm not going to say a moot point, but as you correctly point out, the legislature has now acted in each of those areas as uh, put in effect legislation that paralleled the emergency orders that the Judicial Council, acting under the Chief Justice, put forward earlier in the year. You know, it, it, it may be moot in the sense that it's not the emergency regulations that now govern, but it is far from moot in the important historical and policy sense that when the legislature had time to turn its attention to these issues, it followed and modeled the legislative provisions on what the Judicial Council did and had decided to do in the midst of this enormous crisis. So the legislature, with time to consider and with witnesses and with the normal legislative process, essentially wound up saying, Judicial Council, you did it right. When you did this under pressure, we're validating what you did by now enacting it into legislation. And of course, the the deposition and, and and also the electronic service provisions now have permanently changed the practice of civil litigation in California. And many think uh, all to the better. No one wishes that it would have required this to have gotten it done. But I think there's a developed consensus that in fact, uh, those changes uh, have improved the civil litigation in California and have met the council standard of approving the administration of justice. I thank you for that compliment for the council and for the chief justice. I did want to note, though, that uh, before I was a mediator, I was a civil litigator for over 40 years. And the uh, one of the principal objectives that the uh, council had been looking at back to when we worked together on the, uh, the Commission on the Future of the California Courts, to try and find ways to utilize technology to ease the financial burden on the court system of, of operating. And so, therefore, the idea of using technology for uh, interpreting, for remote appearances, for those sorts of things were already being thought of uh, by each of the 58 counties uh, and the Judicial Council before COVID hit. 
What COVID did was dramatically accelerated the development of those programs. For example, I believe Justice uh, Judge Brazil in Los Angeles County was looking at an 18-month horizon to put in what has now become the uh, uh, L.A. Court Connect uh, program. Uh, uh, instead, he, uh, uh, thanks to uh, tremendous efforts by uh, their administrator, Sherry Carter, and others within that system, they did the whole thing in three months. Now, it may not be working perfectly, but it shows a honest and sincere effort by the judiciary to try and meet the public's need to give them access to justice. And it's that guiding principle, the access, fairness, and diversity that has guided all of the actions of the Judicial Council through the same period. Yeah, no one, you know, no one welcomes a crisis. No one wants it. But the test of a crisis, and you and I in different contexts have, have, have lived through more than one, the test of a crisis is how people react to it. Uh, and not simply bemoan it, but how people react to it, how they mitigate the harm from it, and especially how it's used sometimes, though no one would have wanted it to occur, as an opportunity. And here, with the deposition and the electronic service and other actions in civil litigation, were things that people had spoken about for a long time, uh, that the, the looking to the future of the courts had spoken about, but the, the people reacted to the crisis, the Judicial Council, reacted to the crisis by winding up improving the administration of justice in, 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 in civil litigation uh, and set the model and provided an incentive for the courts, like L.A. County, to move more forward into, uh, into technology. Uh, the council not only did that, the council acted on cash bail. Uh, tell me the, the, the background of, of, of the cash bail emergency order. Well, I, I think uh, that you, uh, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Howard, that uh, nationally there is a, uh, a movement to take a second look at cash bail. The uh, idea being that it, it works an injustice to those less fortunate in our community financially. Uh, I know that the council acting under the leadership of the chief justice has also taken a look at the cash bail issue. And particularly at a time of uh, COVID-19, when uh, many people were unsure where their next paycheck was coming from, uh, how they were going to uh, pay the rent, feed their families, get medical treatment, and so on, uh, that was a urgent time in our uh, community that is still going on. So uh, I cannot address all the underlying factors that went into that decision. I can only speak for myself, and I certainly can't speak on behalf of the Chief Justice or any judge in California. But from my perspective, this was a time when the judicial system had to pull together to try and meet ways of treating the community with fairness. And a moderated, reasonable program towards cash bail, to me, was an element of that. It's important to note that this wasn't just uh, uh, no cash bail for anyone. It was a very carefully targeted program that limited those individuals who could take advantage of being released without payment of a cash bond. So it wasn't just a uh, opening up the courts and letting everyone out. It was not like that. It was a very carefully, very tailored, very sophisticated program of only allowing uh, a relief from cash bail in certain limited circumstances. 
And uh, in fact, what's happened, even though that that time has passed, of course, there have been court rulings on the due process uh, and equal protection implications of this, and many counties are continuing to follow uh, the Judicial Council uh, uh, cash bail uh, program, uh, essentially. And of course, one area that the council moved in, while the legislature could not meet, uh, and we keep using that phrase because I think it's so important uh, to understand why it was the council had to act. That what the council did while the legislature could not meet was to deal with unlawful detainers and judicial foreclosures. What What is it that, that was of concern there that led to those emergency orders? Well, one of the, by uh, uh, the way, again, I can't speak to all the factors, nor can I purport to speak for the council or for the chief, uh, the chief justice or any judge in California, but I can speak for myself. The problem was that uh, there was no way to get to court to get relief uh, if you were a, uh, a tenant that was the subject of a uh, eviction or a tenant that was the subject of a uh, unlawful uh, detainer proceeding. So therefore, the fair thing, it seemed to me, was to try and put a, a limited moratorium on that while uh, the, the, uh, the community, the state, and the country was sorting out what types of remedies needed to exist in this uh, uh, COVID-19 environment we now lived in. And I think it's important to remember that as these rules developed, uh, no one knew how long the COVID issue was going to last. Uh, or, or how serious it was going to be. Uh, so, uh, in, in trying to, uh, create a fair way of dealing with that, there was a rationale for limiting the filing of unlawful detainers and the, uh, uh, filing of actions to remove people from property. Now, I know that there are two sides to that argument because I've seen them in the press that uh, landlords feel that it's unfair to them when tenants would like the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the limitation to extend further. But uh, remember, we were talking at a de- defined point in time where things were very uncertain. The legislator couldn't reasonably act to provide a remedy to these people who were uh, no longer had an income, no longer had a job, had uncertain funding from the federal government, that uh, someone had to step in and do something. And from my perspective, I believe the Judicial Council should be very proud of the fact that they did step in to put, a, 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 to put some measure of sanity into holding up actions to evict people from their homes, uh, uh, at least for a limited period until the legislature could act in a more concerted format. Yeah, I think you've stated you've stated what the at the time. I mean, one important perspective, as you've spoken of, is are the the policy issues about uh, eviction and foreclosure in the midst of the unprecedented crisis. But another is just to to look at this and say, when COVID fully hit in in the March time frame, look at the assumptions that we'd always had about the functioning of the courts. The first assumption is that people could go safely to court. They no longer could go safely to court. The second assumption revolved around tenants and others in terms of their income being affected, not by an economic uh, uh, effect, but by this health effect 
uh, that affected so many people. Another had to do with relations between lawyers and clients. For the same reason the courts could not physically function because of safety concerns, lawyers and clients, especially elderly clients, could not safely meet. So when you look at that March period, even aside from the policy issues about the effect of policy on large numbers of evictions and foreclosures, when you look at it solely from the standpoint of the Judicial Council's mandate to deal with the administration of justice, a whole set of assumptions on which the administration of justice relies, people being able to go to court, meet with their counsel, be able to effectively put together their position in cases because of what they could not do during COVID, a specific set of assumptions on which the administration of justice relies did not exist because of the impact of COVID-19 in the March timeframe, beginning in the March timeframe. And so aside from everything else, it seems to me the Judicial Council, and it did say, and could properly say, we are responsible for the administration of justice. We now have this set of assumptions on which the administration of justice relies that no longer exist. They are gone because of COVID. Also, the legislature cannot meet and deal with these assumptions not being present. So since we are mandated by the Constitution to improve the administration of justice, and we no longer can do so based on old assumptions, we have to do something simply in terms of the administration of justice to deal with the unlawful detainer judicial foreclosure issue. And from that standpoint, uh, the, the statement that the assumptions of the administration of justice no longer existed, that's what the council exists for, to deal with situations like that. And I think that's a perspective that people need to consider when they look at what the council did in terms of its own mandates, aside from the larger public policy issues. Howard, I, I personally believe that's a very, uh, very good way to look at that. Uh, again, as I told you earlier, I'm proud of what the council did uh, during that period. And I think most Californians are as well. Uh, the uh, the fact is that we're dealing with a much larger social problem than just the court system when we talk about landlord-tenant issues. Uh, and it's going to be up to uh, uh, the legislature to ultimately deal with that in a meaningful way. Uh, the uh, legislation that's been passed is a temporary partial solution. But in the long term, uh, it does California, I'm speaking for myself now, does California no good to just open the doors of uh, uh, shelter and uh, uh, create a much larger homeless population uh, because of the policies that are enacted in the laws that they pass? So, yeah, but again, in terms, in, in terms of, you know, th those issues, legal and policy issues are being played out now. We have local legislation in cities. Uh, we have a new statewide legislation that by its terms purports to be preemptive for local action, may or may not be. We have a federally asserted action by the Centers for Disease Control uh, I impacting these issues. Those policy and legal issues will now be played out in a more normal way in the courts. And the reason they can now be played out in a more normal way in the courts is because the assumptions underlying the administration of justice now have come more back to normalcy. The courts have developed ways to function, thanks to a great deal of what the Digital Council did. 
Because of the use of technology, counsel can become familiar with meeting with their clients. So we now can move in terms of decision-making on issues to the more normal court function because the assumptions on which the administration of justice rely, the normal assumptions have now returned. We've gone back to normal. It was just in this period where they didn't apply that the real emergency action uh, had to be taken. Uh, but as you've properly said, these issues go on. Uh, these are just the beginning of issues in terms of, I mean, in your view, you, you, review, you were part of the study of the future of the, of the judicial system and legal system on judicial counsel. Is there an effect of this be that people will continue to look at more uses of technology in terms of dispute resolution and the functioning judicial system? Has this given an impetus uh, to that moving forward? The answer is I believe it absolutely has, Howard. Technology was a mainstay of uh, that commission's findings. And uh, I believe that that's exactly what's happened. I mean, you're involved in mediation. I am as well. Uh, we know how uh, Zoom and uh, WebEx and BlueJeans have all changed the way we do business. And frankly, uh, many, many uh, users of those systems uh, believe that uh, there's an advantage to using remote technology. I recall, Howard, you wrote a uh, very prescient article for the Daily Journal when all of this first started talking about the benefits of uh utilizing virtual uh, systems to help assist in the decision-making process. The courts have now moved into that, uh, L.A. County and, and most other courts throughout the state, in a very, very meaningful way. Uh, one of the areas that, of course, has been a... a, a uh, there are two areas of serious problem. Uh, again, I'm speaking for myself now, although I think the presiding judges would generally agree with this. And that is that uh, it's very difficult to hold a civil jury trial with the restrictions on distancing that are required now. And also, uh, there is a backlog of all kinds of cases, criminal cases, uh, unlawful detainer cases, uh, civil cases, as a result of the fact that the court has had removed from it the ability to deal with those kinds of cases in an effective way for a period of almost six months. Yeah, I do want to talk. I do want to talk about all of those things. Those are such important things to talk about. And we've been focusing on this very important issue. Uh, but of course, there are a great many legal issues in California, nationally, internationally. The Daily Journal has covered this issue extensively. Uh, but the Daily Journal also covers a great many other issues. Let's take another short break to hear about some of the current news stories that the Daily Journal is covering. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of September 21st. As the nation mourned pioneering Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former clerks remembered her as a precise writer and an inspiring boss. State Supreme Court Justice Goodwin H. Liu, who clerked for Ginsburg in 2000, recalled her making grammar corrections on internal memos in pencil. Munger Toll's partner Daniel B. Levin echoed this sentiment, saying Ginsburg would thoroughly annotate drafted opinions in pencil, which he said, quote, was an opportunity to get a window into her thinking, end quote. 
Beyond her skills as a jurist, Anna Rose Matheson of the California Appellate Law Group said Ginsburg would hold tea parties in her chambers, complete with a cake from Ginsburg's husband, Marty. The justice would ask her clerks about their lives and tell stories about the opera. Southern California Edison has agreed to pay $1.16 billion to insurance companies to settle claims from the 2017 Thomas Fire. Edison was facing thousands of claims from homeowners, public entities, business owners, and insurance policyholders for its role in the blaze that burned 280,000 acres in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. This settlement comes nearly a year after the utility paid out settlements to 23 public entities affected by the Thomas Fire and the subsequent Montecito debris flows, which killed 21 people. So far, the utility says it has paid out $6.2 billion in settlements. The state bar is facing pressure from frustrated bar exam test takers about issues with the exam software. Due to the pandemic, the bar exam moved online using a service called ExamSoft, Many have alleged the software is problematic, with some claims that users can use copy-and-paste functions to cheat, and according to a lawsuit filed in the Northern District, is prohibitive for test-takers with disabilities to use. Now concerned students say they have spent thousands of dollars on new laptops to avoid technological challenges with ExamSoft. The co-founders of Student Advocacy Group, United for Diploma Privilege, recently submitted a petition to the state Supreme Court to waive the October bar exam entirely because of these issues, but that petition was denied. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. Well, Pat, before we broke, we were starting to talk about technology and the impact of technology, and you mentioned civil jury trials even outside what the council has done, but you, you've been a part of so much of the planning and will continue to be. Let's talk about, we talk about civil trials, we talk about the difficulty especially of civil jury trials. Uh, non-jury trials may prevent, may present uh, less of an issue, but the, the, the indications of juror reaction are now very complex. Some people have received juror notices the middle of September to appear in a criminal case the first week of October. I mean, there are indications that there is a developing difficulty and crisis in simply obtaining jurors to deal with criminal cases, let alone the civil cases. Will technology have to look at how we deal with how jurors are involved in cases to ultimately deal with the issue? You know, it's interesting that you would raise that, Howard, uh, since uh, I do feel a responsibility to try and uh, do my best to help uh, in, in reaching access and fairness and diversity within our state system. I pay attention to those. The problem uh, with the civil jury trial issue is uh, uh, not only is it logistically difficult, not only is there a fear factor in the minds of jurors uh, for showing up uh, in a jury pool or somehow becoming part of a jury. But uh, also, I understand from uh, the Superior Court in Los Angeles, for example, that traditionally a jury summons would yield a return of about uh, 30%, uh, but that that number is now down to 10%. So there is a very real problem in getting jurors to show up. I recently, uh, I'm a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, and there was recently 
a uh, all-day seminar put on on uh, comparing various models that various states were using to try and get jury trials moving forward. But the thing I walked away with is when you're dealing with the numbers of uh, uh, people, the number of judges in what is the largest court system in the world that we call the California court system, uh, when you're dealing with that magnitude of numbers, it's very, very difficult to get a one-size-fits-all solution. And it's also very, very difficult to uh, get the community support by showing up as jurors to allow trials to go forward, let alone finding venues where you can uh, have those trials uh, uh, that allow people to be socially distanced. Now, I'm aware of a couple that have gone forward in California. In fact, recently a criminal trial went forward in the Los Angeles County Superior Court. However, uh, they require distancing. They tie up tremendous space. Uh, and as you correctly pointed out, it's difficult to find a jury to show up in the first place. Now, there are models some states have used to try and pick jurors over Zoom but uh, uh, or to try and present cases over the Internet. But you know as a mediator, one of the problems with that is you don't really know for sure who's in the other room. Uh, and you don't know what you can do about confidentiality issues when it deals with a trial court setting. There's another important note to make about juries, and then I want to ask a question outside the juror context. One of the impacts of this, even if jurors start to show up that people have just begun to talk about, is there will be a change in the demographic composition of jurors. For example, a significant number of jurors always used to be older people in the population. Uh, and p people who do this, and you've done this and I've done it, do elaborate psychological studies of different generations, how millennials and Gen Z and the other generations react differently. We will not have the same demographic jury pool even when jurors do show up. So that's something else that has to be thought about. But I want to finish with one other, uh, aside from a jury question, Pat. We both know, we've both done a lot of civil litigation, and we both know there are enormous parts of civil litigation that involve neither a juror nor credibility of a witness. I mean, you need people in a courtroom. We have the difficulty with jurors, the whole issue of witness credibility, people think require a, a witness in the courtroom. But a huge amount of the work of the civil litigation system involves neither a jur jury or any juror, nor having any witness in the courtroom. Cases can move all through pleading stage, discovery, f briefing, argument, filing on summary judgment without ever involving a juror or a witness whose credibility must be determined. Is that a place where technology can really have a mammoth effect in terms of having all those pretrial procedures move remotely and through technology, since really the presence in the courtroom is of a whole different order. Uh, I think I think it is such an area. I know that there's been some discussion recently of uh, reference of uh, cases out to 
uh, mediators or private judges to keep the momentum going in a given case. But I want to add something to that. I think one of the keys to that is the way local presiding judges are dealing with that particular problem. Uh, for example, in Los Angeles County, if you wish and if both sides agree, you can generally have uh, motions or hearings of any kind uh, heard remotely. Uh, uh, now, both sides at this point have to agree to that, but if you're willing to agree to it, you can have your motion for summary judgment heard or your motion to dismiss. Or But why should both sides have to agree if no witness or jury is involved, if it's simply a legal issue with argument on the papers in front of a judge who can be reached remotely? Is that not an issue that everyone will have to deal with? Why do both sides have to agree to move to remote non-jury, non-witness hearings, when in fact the remote technology, the papers are filed, the argument can be made remotely. So do we, will we not face the policy question, does this require the agreement of both sides, or as a matter of policy, uh, should it become part of the procedure? I think that's a valid point, Howard. Uh, uh, we already saw that happen with the question of remote depositions and the requirement that the court reporter be in the same room with the uh, witness. Uh, I believe it is a policy issue. Uh, at this point, those policy issues are being determined at a local level. Uh, and uh, uh, my greatest experience, of course, is with the Superior Court in Los Angeles County. Uh, and it, it is their decision to require a party agreement to uh, uh, allow such a proceeding to go forward remotely. But it may be as time passes and as further actions take place, and now that we have a legislature that's functioning again, uh, it may be that there will be further legislation or rules that uh, will, will make it mandatory to appear uh, by virtue remotely uh, to hear certain types of proceedings. Uh, how rapidly that's going to happen, I can't say. Uh, but I think it's certainly something that deserves the attention of every attorney and every jurist. Pat, thank you so much. You know, we began talking about the history of the Judicial Council and its importance constitutionally and practically and what it had dealt with in the past and what it has now had to deal, deal with in this extraordinary year of 2020. You've been one of those in the hot seat. And I think that the entire uh, California legal judicial system uh, should give thanks to all of those who have been in the hot seat, who under these pressures have had to deal with it. And what's so interesting is that the way you've dealt with it has now been validated in many parts by the legislature. And also the way you've dealt with it has provided a model for perhaps moving forward on a more permanent basis to a more efficient and functioning system of justice. Pat, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Howard.